Turn with me, please, to John chapter 6. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1070, or in the larger print Bibles, 1657. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is all about bread. Well, it's not all about bread, but it is mostly about bread. Now, I realize some of you may not eat bread at all, for one reason or another, maybe because you're on a particular kind of diet. So in our society today, bread has probably lost some of the status it used to have as the basic food. But in many parts of the world today, it still is the core of people's diet. And that was certainly the case in New Testament times. To talk about bread was to talk about what human beings relied on for life. Bread was not a luxury you could do without, like cake or chocolate. You might not feel you could do without cake or chocolate, but you could if you really had to. In New Testament times, bread was the thing you could not do without. You needed it to live. And that is the context for what we're about to hear from Jesus as he talks about bread from heaven. If bread from the oven is what we need for physical life, then bread from heaven is what we need for eternal life. It's been a few weeks since we last looked at John's Gospel And when we did, we saw Jesus miraculously providing ordinary bread for a very large group of people, thousands of people. The situation was that he and his disciples had crossed the Sea of Galilee from the more populated western side of the sea to an isolated spot on the eastern side. John told us a great crowd of people followed Jesus. It seems they walked around the northern part of the lake. So when they arrived, they were a hungry crowd. And Jesus fed them. In his hands, five small bread rolls and two little fish became enough to satisfy thousands of people with plenty left over. And so John chapter 6 began by showing us Jesus, the provider of bread. Then, after that miracle, the disciples set off back across the lake in their boat without Jesus. A storm came up, and Jesus approached them walking on the water. He delivered them safely to the other side of the lake. That's where we left things last time, and now this morning, we're going to pick up at chapter 6, verse 22, as the crowd left behind are trying to figure out what happened to Jesus. And we're going to read through to verse 40. John chapter 6, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord, people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. This is God's Word. And it tells us two things. It tells us what God wants from us, and it tells us what God gives us. First of all, in verses 22 to 29, what God wants from us. This great crowd in Galilee are pretty enthusiastic about Jesus. They chased after him on foot from the west to the east side of the lake. Now in verses 22 to 24, we're told they chase after him back in the other direction. And this time, at least some of them go in boats. Somebody over in Capernaum had a good eye for a business opportunity. They realized there was a very big crowd gathered over on the far side of the lake, and they organized boats to taxi the people back. So the crowd pile out of the boats on the west side of the lake, and they go looking for Jesus. They find him teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. That detail will be given to us later in chapter 6. Apparently, questions and answers were quite normal in the synagogue setting. 
And as these people burst through the synagogue doors, their first question to Jesus is, in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's a reasonable question. And it's not only about timing. It's not even about how he got across the lake without a boat. These people want to know why he left them on the other side. Now, we know why he left. Back in verse 15, John told us the crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force. They'd seen his power with the bread and the fish, and they wanted to press gang Jesus into leading them into war against the Romans. That's why Jesus took off without any explanation. His mission was not to fight the Romans. It was to die for the sin of the world. And he was not going to be deflected from that. So here, the next day, when they find him and ask him for an explanation, we might expect Jesus to give them one. But he doesn't. In verse 25, the people ask, when did you get here? But Jesus doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to focus on something else. Look again at his answer in verse 26. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus here is questioning the people about their motivation in life. He's telling them their ambitions are far too small. Earlier we saw they were interested in Jesus as a political leader. Now Jesus points to their interest in him as a magical chef who can fill their bellies. And he wants them to see what they are looking for from him is way too limited. It's way too unambitious. They want someone to give them a better government and free food. Now, as we mentioned earlier, food is necessary for us, especially basic food like bread. And good government is a good thing. It's right that we are concerned about those things for ourselves and for others. And Jesus is too. Remember, just a few hours before this, he provided this crowd with not just a snack, but a filling meal. Jesus cares about those kind of things. And it would be strange if we didn't care about them as well. But what Jesus is challenging us with here is the need to increase our ambition. To look to him for so much more than good government and full bellies. More than all the other short-term, earth-bound things we're obsessed with as human beings. That's why he says in verse 26, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now on one level, they did see the sign he performed. Of course they did. They saw him miraculously multiply the bread and fish. That's why they're so excited about him. But what Jesus is getting at is this. They didn't really see the sign he performed. They didn't see what it really meant. 
They didn't see what it signified. The physical food Jesus provided was a symbol of the spiritual food he provides. Spiritual food that never spoils. It never goes off. Earlier in John's Gospel, we saw Jesus provide wine at a wedding. We've also seen him offer a Samaritan woman living water. Now here, it's food that endures to eternal life. And in each case, Jesus uses ordinary things to point to an extraordinary thing. The eternal life that he can give. He says to these people, be more ambitious. You're looking to me for short-term things. You ought to look to me for eternal things. And Jesus says the same thing to you and me. Of course, it's perfectly appropriate to look to him for our daily bread. It's right to bring all of our daily needs and concerns to him. But let's not be so unambitious that we treat Jesus like a glorified grocery man or even a glorified GP. He has so much more for us than that. And he is able to provide so much more because he is, verse 27 says, the Son of Man on whom God the Father has placed his seal of approval. We've seen several times already in John's Gospel, the Son of Man is described in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. He's described there as a human being with all of God's authority, a God-man. That is who Jesus claimed to be. And that's why Jesus can provide not only short-term things, but also eternal things. He comes with all of God's authority. As he'll say in a moment, he is the one sent from God the Father. Well, here in the synagogue in Capernaum, the crowd are interested. They realize he can give us more than just full bellies. And they pick up on the fact that in verse 27, Jesus told them to work for what he can give. Verse 27 says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. To work for something is to put your energy into it. It's to pursue it. So the people ask the obvious question in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? What does God want from us so we can receive what you give, Jesus? Give us the game plan. Set out the challenge for us. What mountain do we have to climb on our hands and knees if that's what it takes? What pilgrimage do we have to go on? How much do we have to give to charity? How many prayers do we have to say? How many sacrifices do we have to bring to the temple? What does God want from us so we can receive what you give? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus doesn't say, do nothing, but neither does he set out some challenge in terms of our effort. He says, you want what I can give? Then believe in me. 
Now, already John's gospel has shown us that belief is a tricky word. We've heard about people who believed in Jesus, but their belief amounted to nothing more than excitement about Jesus because he did miracles. And that is not the kind of belief Jesus is calling for here. He's not talking about belief that only lasts as long as things are going smoothly and then fades away when things are difficult. When Jesus says, believe in me, he means rely on me. Trust me totally. Accept me for who I say I am. Trust me when you're happy and things are going well and life makes sense. And trust me also when things are not going well and you're baffled by what's happening. You're totally at the end of your rope. Trust me then too. Rely on me in the darkness as well as the light. That's the kind of belief Jesus is talking about. And if we think of it in terms of the main image of this whole chapter, to believe in Jesus is to view him the way we view bread. It's what we need to live. We cannot live without it. And true belief in Jesus views him the same way. A few verses on, Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. So true belief in Jesus looks to him not as a luxury we can do without like cake or chocolate. Not something we can take or leave as the mood strikes us. True belief in Jesus looks to him as the essential, non-negotiable bread of life. And so when we ask, what does God want from us? The answer is, what God wants from us is to rely totally on Jesus. Look to him as your only hope in life and death. By all means, carefully examine the evidence for Jesus, but don't approach Jesus like you're putting him on trial. Of course, look to Jesus for all your daily needs. But don't turn your back on him when days or months or even years go by and you don't think you're getting what you need from Jesus. Turn your life and your circumstances and your future over to him. Rely on him even when nothing in life makes sense. Trust his word even when everybody around you has abandoned his word. And we need to see this is not just for those who aren't yet Christians. What do I most need to do today? I need to believe in Jesus. I need to rely totally on him in today's challenges and temptations. What do you most need to do today? You need to believe in Jesus. Rely totally on him 
in your particular challenges and temptations. Turn yourself over to him as you face the rest of this day. And tomorrow, do it again. That's what God wants from us. Now in verses 30 to 40, Jesus, is fo- Jesus focuses on what God gives us. Satisfaction and security in Jesus. Jesus has already begun to explain this when he said that he gives food that endures to eternal life. And now he makes it clearer. But before he does that, the crowd asks Jesus a bizarre question. Totally bizarre. In verse 30. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Didn't Jesus just give them bread? Miraculously? But now they want another miracle before they'll believe. And in fact, that's how it often works. When people say, if God would just show himself, if he'd just do something spectacular and unmistakable, then I'd believe in him. With people like that, nothing is ever enough. God could create the world out of nothing. He could send his own son into the world to die and be raised to life. And even that wouldn't be enough for people who demand spectacular, unmistakable signs of God's power. When human beings put God and His Son on trial, when they make themselves the judge of God, when they approach God with such arrogance, no evidence will ever be enough for them. If you're determined to be the judge of Jesus... You will never get to the point of turning yourself over to him and receiving what he gives. This crowd have just filled their bellies with food miraculously provided by Jesus and they have the cheek here to stand in front of him and say, what else have you got, Jesus? Do another one and make it bigger this time. In verse 31, they point to a time in the past after God had delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. After that exodus, when the Israelites were traveling through the desert, God fed them with this manna that appeared in the ground each morning. It was miracle bread, bread from heaven. And these people want more of that kind of thing. But as we saw earlier, as far as Jesus is concerned, their ambitions are too limited. Their horizon is limited to what's immediate and physical. So in verse 32, Jesus speaks about the true bread from heaven. It's not that the manna wasn't real. It's that the manna peels into insignificance beside what Jesus is offering. And in verse 35, Jesus goes on to say, I am that true bread. I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. 
And Jesus explains what he gives to those who rely totally on him. Those who look to him as what they need in order to live, those men and women and children receive satisfaction and security in him. So the crowd have asked Jesus, what will you do? Meaning, what cool tricks will you do? What's the next course on your menu of miracle food? What will you fill our bellies with today? In response, Jesus says in the middle of verse 35, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. As we hear that, we might think Jesus is promising to be their on-call chef. But we know he's not talking here about literal tea and toast. We know that because back in verse 27, he told the crowd to look to him not for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So here in verse 35, Jesus is talking about spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. He's talking about the needs and the longings that you and I carry deep down inside us. He's talking about the most fundamental hunger you and I have in our heart. The hunger and thirst to know that we have a purpose. To know that our life has value and meaning. To know we are loved with an everlasting love. To know we have a glorious eternal future ahead of us. Jesus says, whoever relies totally on me will find that deepest hunger and thirst satisfied. Does this mean if you rely totally on Jesus, you're never going to have a day when you feel dissatisfied? You'll never have a day when you feel depressed? Does it mean you'll always feel like skipping down the street, singing praise songs? Of course not. Don't we know only too well that at the surface level, our emotions are very changeable? Some of us have to say we're all over the place from day to day. But this is a promise of a deep down fullness. A deep down peace and satisfaction that's there even when things on the surface are frantic and chaotic. It's a bit like a deep sea diver who's fully aware of the storm going on on the surface of the water but he's focused on the treasure he's found deep down below the surface. He's not oblivious to the difficulties up on the surface. That's where he lives. But deep down, he's got something so precious, it changes how he lives when he goes back up into the storm. And when you and I come to rely on Jesus we find that kind of deep satisfaction in him. And alongside that deep down satisfaction, Jesus gives security. Look again at the final verses of our passage, starting in verse 37. Jesus says, 
all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Verse 37 is the key to this. Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. This is beautiful. If we think about it. We've heard earlier about our own responsibility. We must respond to Jesus. We must come to him and believe in him in the sense of relying totally on him. Here, though, Jesus describes things from his perspective. All those who come to him have been given to him by his Father. So think about your own situation. When you came to Jesus, what was happening? What was going on? Well, you were listening to the message about Jesus. You were making the decision to accept it. That really was what was going on. But equally, at the very same time, something else was also true in your situation. In eternity past, God the Father had chosen to give you to his Son. And your coming to Jesus was the outworking of that eternal purpose of God. Just look again at the order of what Jesus says in verse 37. All those the Father gives me, that happens first, will come to me. When you came to Jesus, it was because the Father had given you to Jesus. That is one aspect of the security you have in Jesus. You have been entrusted to Jesus by the Father. And the other aspect of your security is that Jesus will keep hold of you. He says in the second half of verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Meaning, I will preserve them. I will keep them. In verse 39, he says, I shall lose none of all those the Father has given me. So if you have turned yourself over to Jesus, you are not the exception to that. There are no exceptions. And that keeping leads to resurrection life at the end of history. Twice in these verses, Jesus says, at the last day, he will raise up those the Father has given him. The Father and the Son are perfectly united. And their perfect unity is at work to provide you with eternal security in Jesus. That is the Father's will. And as Jesus says in verse 38, He came from heaven to do His Father's will. 
And so I think Dan Ortland is right to say that in these verses, we are talking about something even deeper than the doctrine of eternal security, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. We have come here more deeply to the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. Come to me, says Christ. I will embrace you into my deepest being and never let you go. In Christ, you have security. Because it is the will of the Father and the Son that the Son will never let you go. And knowing that, what else do we want to do except rely totally on Jesus and keep relying totally on Him? We're going to have the opportunity to recommit to that in a moment as we share the bread and wine together. But first, let's join together in singing this truth that our Lord Jesus Christ will never let us go. He will hold us fast.